Warning, what you are about to hear can only be classified as real talk. This podcast is not intended for the faint of heart or the status quo keepers. Schools are big places, and regardless of what you do, you know just how real things can get at times. In this space, we will talk about real people, real schools, and real situations, so you know just what to do when things get real. It's Real Talk with Jeannie and Matt. And welcome back for episode number two of Real Talk with Jeannie and Matt. Jeannie, I got to be honest with you, the response that we got after episode one was overwhelming at times, Uh, getting emails, text messages daily, also just watching that listenership go up every single day. The response has been incredible. I know you've probably gotten some similar responses on your end of the world. I absolutely did, Matt. And it was really fun to kind of hear everybody's reaction um, to the conversation that we had with with Ken Williams and Dr. Levise Haney. I mean, people were moved um, by the conversation. I think uh, our goal of having some real talk um, actually happened in that episode without question. And I think our second episode is going to do the same. Absolutely. And it's a, an area that I think, you know, not without question, both of us are extremely passionate about. We're going to springboard off this idea of equity that we talked about in episode one. We're going to dive deeper into the world of special education specifically and talk about how we can be inclusive in our schools to accommodate all the learners that are in our classroom. Again, Jeannie, I know this is an area that you are extremely passionate. I absolutely am, Matt. And um, I find myself becoming more and more passionate every single day as I work with schools across the country to help them figure out how to ensure that all students learn at high levels. So I think these conversations um, are professional learning for me, and I hope for the for the listeners as well. And I'm excited for um, everyone to have a chance to listen to Heather and Julie and Michelle, our three guests that will be coming on a little bit later. Absolutely. And, you know, with, in, with this topic specifically, I feel like in schools, a lot of times it's taboo to question the status quo. We are going to question the status quo today. So I want to encourage you listeners at home, if you liked our first episode or if you're excited about this second episode, a couple things that you can do for us to help us. Obviously, like our podcast, subscribe to it. More importantly, share it with your friends, share it with your peers, share it with anybody that you think might connect to this particular topic. We would love for this message to get all across the country. So that's on you. Jeannie, Jeannie, any last thoughts before we jump into today's episode? I agree, Matt. Anybody uh, that you can share this with that you think would benefit from it. um, I just, I also want to say thank you to all of our listeners who did that with our first episode. Um, As Matt said, we were overwhelmed and overjoyed by the reaction that we received from um, episode one. So I hope that you all enjoy episode two just as much. With that said, let's get started. I'm not good at golf. You see, most sports come pretty easily for me, but golf was a real challenge. I thought I could just get out on the course, swing hard at the little white ball and send it flying towards the hole. No big deal. Well, 
it was a big deal. And I found out quickly that golf was not a sport that I could attack with the usual intensity I applied in other sports like volleyball, basketball, and tennis. I had to actually keep my head down and swing with grace and finesse. Oh, and yes, I had to watch out for the hazards like water, sand, trees, you name it. The hazards are out there. But here's the thing. I had to keep going until I made it to the hole. I had to struggle through the whiffs, the large chunks of grass I sent flying with the little white ball still firmly in place, the balls lost in the water, the rest of the foursome waiting patiently and sometimes not so patiently as I worked to get the ball to the hole. However, the foursome encouraged me to keep trying. They gave me advice, they shared strategies, and they helped me keep track of my score, which wasn't always an easy task. What they never did is hit the ball for me or tell me to pick up the ball and walk it to the hole. Instead, they cheered me on and told me not to give up, that eventually I'd get better. I didn't always get to the hole the same way as everyone else in my foursome. In fact, sometimes if I was close enough to the hole within chipping range, I'd putt it because I had more control that way. I knew my goal was to get the ball to the hole with the least amount of strokes as possible. So I did what I had to do. There was lots of productive struggle happening on the course every time I played. And yes, I kept getting back on the course for more golf time and time again. I get better by engaging in the very thing that was a struggle for me. I'm still not a great golfer, but I can definitely hold my own on the golf course. What if my fellow golfers encouraged me to carry the ball to a spot on the fairway closer to the hole, therefore removing some of the struggle? What if one of them got me out of the sand trap by hitting it out for me? You're probably thinking, well, who would do that? That's not how golf works. Productive struggle, in fact, is what keeps most golfers in the game. They're always striving to be better. It's just part of the game. In schools, it should be too. Learning should be a struggle sometimes, but often we pick up the ball for the kids. We remove the challenge. Why? Because we care about them because we worry about their self-esteem. We want them to feel successful. I would not have felt successful at golf if a fellow golfer is the one who got me out of the sand trap. It needed to be me. I would have felt the opposite. I would have felt like my fellow golfer didn't think I was capable or that I could do it that maybe they even felt sorry for me, so they just did it for me. Let's let students swing the club as many times as it takes so that they can get to the hole. But let's make sure they all get to the hole. 
let's stop talking about why some can't and create opportunities where they can and that it's okay to productively struggle. Let's foster independence and struggle for all students. Let's be ready to support, encourage, guide, and share strategies with our students when it gets challenging. Yes, I can golf now. And yes, we can ensure that all students learn. Jeannie, holy smokes, you brought the heat today. <laughs> I absolutely love the analogy. I, I could not relate more. First of all, I am a terrible golfer. I, I am absolutely horrible. So hearing your experience, first of all, makes me feel better about my golf game. But more importantly, when I think about the learners in our classroom, how true it is what you just shared, this idea of, you know, us being compelled, feeling like we have to rescue folks when things get challenging. Oftentimes we do it with just the best intentions possible, but unfortunately that doesn't always help our learners grow um, into what, what we want them to be, which is to, to learn a grade level mastery or higher. I, I just would ask, you know, like dig in a little further, like, you know, the, the whole golf analogy, but in your experiences, how have you seen this play out in the classroom? Well, I, I just have to say that I use the golf analogy because when I think about the times in my life that I've really kind of felt proud of um, and really learned a lot were the times when I productively struggled through something. Um, and I think in the classroom, you're right, Matt, I think what we try to do is um, rescue students from that productive struggle because we want that, it's all, all for good reasons, right? We want them to feel confident. We want them to feel like they, um, the work in front of them is something they can do. Um, but I think unintentionally what we do in that situation is we harm them more than we help them. Um, and I think it's just a mindset shift. I think it's instead of saying, how can I make this easier? Um, to ensure that the student feels confident. Um, I think we need to say, how do we, how do we build the bridges and scaffolds to the, to the work that's more difficult, um, but help the student figure out how to get there um, instead of just making it simpler. And I feel like in golf, um, you know, most sports come pretty easy to me, but on the golf course, it was a huge challenge. And, you know, there were times when I'm sure the people who were playing with me wanted to just pick up my ball for me or hit it for me or make it easier for me. Um, but I'm really glad they didn't because it, it, it led me back to the golf course to keep trying. Um, I think that is part of what golf's all about, though, too, right? You, um, it's always a challenge. Um, and, but, but I think the challenge is what we're looking for with kids, too. So how do we shift that mindset of rescue and really, really, you know, work on that productive struggle towards grade level work for all kids? You know, and, I, and I think about this, and I think one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about it was because I was that special education teacher. 
I was that special education teacher that absolutely adored the kids that I got the chance to work with. And fortunately, there were times where I, quite frankly, did not give them the opportunity that they deserved uh, to work at grade level or higher. I, I just assumed that, that they weren't ready for that. And, and I look back at that now and I wish that, you know, I could do some things differently, uh, but I connect to it in that way. And I got to tell you, I don't think that it's just in the context of our classroom sometimes. I think that if you zoom out, sometimes we don't even allow students access to the classroom right. to learn to begin with. So it's not like we're rescuing them from a hard task. We're not even giving them the opportunity to access a difficult task. Uh, and Jeannie, maybe you can speak just a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's what happens is uh, we see the label, whatever that label might be. Um, and, and we automatically without even checking if the student's capable make the assumption um, that maybe they can't do something that most likely when we ask a student to rise to a challenge they will um, and I think we we often make decisions way too quickly about what a student is capable of and not capable of and yeah I do think that at times we don't even give them the chance to be in a classroom where high levels of learning is actually happening. So this conversation that we're going to have with uh, two of my um, colleagues and yours um, that have been a part of this journey uh, with me and you, Matt, um, for a long time. I know Heather Frizzell, um, current superintendent in a school district in um, Fox Lake, Illinois, and Julie Schmidt, uh, my superintendent in Kildare District 96 in Buffalo Grove, Illinois. And then we're also bringing Michelle Wambach, um, a principal in Arizona, um, who has been doing the work with Yes We Can and seeing results in her schools. Um, so I'm really excited um, to talk to all three of them. And I think we have a great, uh, a great conversation coming up for you. Absolutely. And I think we would be remiss. I would be remiss if I don't just point out the fact that we're having two great guests on in Julie Schmidt and Heather Frizzell that were part of writing an incredible book. Yes, we can. But Jeannie, you were the third author of that book. And again, for me, this whole experience has been surreal because I get to host this show with you. Uh, but, I, but I just want to point out the fact that I told you my uh, approach when I was in the classroom as a special ed teacher was very different than where my mindset is at right now um, as a former principal and now kind of traveling the country and working with schools. And I credit a big part of my shifted mindset in your book, Yes, We Can. It really changed me as a leader and it changed my school. And as a result, it's changed so many other schools and leaders across the country. So I'm excited to dig into this conversation with all three of you as the authors, and then also talk to Michelle just a little bit later in our show today. Yeah, and Matt, one more thing I have to say, um, we are seeing results all across the country too um, with the schools we're working with, um, where the mindset shift is happening, the collaboration between general educators and special educators is happening at a higher level. We're seeing um, outcomes for kids change. Um, and that's the most exciting part for me is, um, as Heather calls it now in the podcast, our little book um, is making a, a big difference in a lot of places. And that's pretty exciting for me. No question. And I don't want to wait any longer to welcome our guest to the show. Uh, so let's just jump right in 
and get started. Let's do it. Well, episode two is going to be an absolute dandy. If we did not kill it with our first week of guests, we absolutely knocked it out of the park this week. Could not be more proud to have on some incredible authors, speakers, honestly, just educational geniuses in the field, the authors of Yes, We Can, Julie Schmidt, Heather Frizzell, and of course, my co-host, friend, mentor, Jeannie Spiller, to talk about the world of special education and specifically how we really resonate with this idea of all means all in the school place. I'm going to turn it over to you guys for just a second to give us some background on why you chose to write this book. Julie, I'm going to I'm going to turn the question over to you first. Give us some background. Where did you all arrive at this idea of Yes, We Can? Well, you know, it, I really feel like the origins of Yes, We Can, um, the origins are really pretty unique, um, in my opinion, because I think rarely, if ever, do you find a text that's co-created by three different people who have really different backgrounds related to our journeys in education leadership, right? Uh, so Jeannie and Heather were classroom teachers. Jeannie um, came you know, through the curriculum lens. Heather, uh, a, a teacher, a coach, a principal, assistant principal, student services director. I started as a school psychologist. And, and, um, and then when we wrote Yes, We Can was a brand new superintendent. And I think it's really unique because rarely do you see educators focusing in on anything that has to do with special education unless they are special educators and special education administrators. So it was really a cool opportunity for us to really, I think, laser, like laser-like focus in on all really means all. And by the way, whether it's the curriculum director, the principal, student services director, the superintendent, all, like all of us are focused on, on closing the gaps for all kids. And so it made it really, I think, a powerful experience for me because I, my entire career, I've been in positions that have been involved with special education, whether it was a school psychologist or special ed administrator. And I never collaborated with curriculum directors and principals on anything related to special education when it came to uh, teaching and learning and best practices. So it was really exciting. But um, in um, our, we, we don't all work in the same district uh, now, but we did for a very long time when Yes We Can was kind of born. And, and Matt, really originally, we realized that as Kildare District 96, where all three of us were uh, administrators at the time, as professional learning communities practices became more deeply embedded and the district just did the work, right? Identified essentials, common formative assessments, began to implement systems of intervention and just really protected that work and, and made sure that's what we were focusing on for a long period of time. We started to see the gaps between students with IEPs and all students. We began to see the gap close significantly. We didn't start the journey to focus just on special education. We, we did it because we all believed it, it, they, they were the best practices for all kids, but we started to see the gaps close and we wanted to make sure that we understood what were the high leverage things that impacted those student outcomes. We wanted to memorialize those because the bottom line is, although we've been doing professional learning uh, communities practices for a long time, we would go out and talk to people all the time and 
would oftentimes hear, well, this doesn't apply to special ed or how does it apply to special ed? And oftentimes they would bring us to their schools to talk about PLC practices and special educators wouldn't even be in the room or related services folks, they wouldn't even be there. So, so we wanted to memorialize all that. We wanted to kind of double down on the missed opportunities, right? And the continued, um, the continued working in silos, right? That, were ha- that was happening across the country when it came to um, students who are entitled to an IEP. So, so it was born out of really starting to see some results from doing really good deep PLC work and the opportunity to put all of our minds together given each and every day we were looking through a little bit of a different lens. And I think that's what really made it pretty powerful. So Heather, jump in, tell us a little bit more from your perspective you know, how did this all start? I'm sure it's similar to Julie's story. And I know I would probably say a lot of the things that I just heard you saying to Julie, but Heather, you know, what, what was your lens? Yeah, I think it was really a passion project um, that once we started writing, it came together really quickly um, because we had a strong message. We knew we wanted to say simply because what we were doing was working and it was working for all kids and for all educators. So in our district, we stopped hearing things like we would hear in other places when we'd go to visit things like, well, this is the special ed PLC or you know, my kids, those kids, ours kids, these kids, the sweet and lows. We just didn't talk like that. And, and it became something that was kind of like, well, if we can do it here, why can't this same kind of work? It's very practical in its nature. It's grounded in research, but the whole purpose of the book was to kind of be a cookbook. Um, not that there's one straight answer, but there are certainly solid best practices to how to make this work. And I think what's been cool about it in its evolution is it's not about just IEP entitled students, right? right. It's about emerging bilinguals. It's about students who are entitled with 504s. And quite frankly, it's all kids because I think um, any educator can can very quickly identify the fact that not all kids learn in the same day, in the same way, the same things. So if you can get ahead of where you think kids may struggle because you've got really smart people around the table planning ahead of time what to do so you can be proactive rather than, oh my God, reactive and what are we going to do? It it helps all kids and it helps educators feel like they are, there's a less frequent time that they're carrying home that gigantic monogram bag full of stuff trying to figure out I you know I did my best and I still had kids that struggled so I either got to crack the code tonight go deep in the google rabbit hole or go back in tomorrow and just do it again slower and louder like that we know that that's not going to work so how can we rely on each other's each other and truly collaborate and bring the best of each other for our kids who we're all blessed to serve so it it really ends up being something that the three of us just lit up thinking about because we knew it had the potential not just to influence one student group, but every student group. And when you have the chance to do something like that, it lights you up inside. Um, and I know I speak for the three of us, like we couldn't be more proud of where it's gotten, not because we take credit as authors, but rather than because, oh my gosh, look at things that are happening for kids because people have chosen to read our goofy little book that we just kind of cooked up together and thought, hey, this is pretty smart stuff. I wonder if it'll stick. And now um, it, it's not only sticking, but but really making a difference. And that that is cool to see. Well, I well, got to tell you, go ahead, Julie. No, I was just going to say, and to Heather's point, 
that we're finally having the conversations that include all kids. You know, I mean, how long we were talking with other schools and districts and teams about PLC work, and it was always a side conversation. So if nothing else ever came of yes, we can, then pushing the conversation, I would, I would have been happy. Amen. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, as, as a former principal that I was in the principal's chair when this book came out and it made a massive difference in my leadership. It changed my mindset and as a result, changed my school. So there, there's no question the difference that you all have made. And I couldn't agree more that you can drop the, the, the IEP kind of concept from the book altogether and it's going to apply equally well, well to any group of students uh, that you could potentially talk about. Now that kind of leads into the second question. Heather, I'm going to stick with you on this one. I know that you listened to episode one of Real Talk because it was awesome and we kept yeah, how it How do you real. know? Was it because I was tweeting you guys through, or texting Listen, you through the whole thing? <laughs> you are our biggest cheerleader and we could not appreciate you more. Uh, but Agreed, one of the things, totally. <laughs> you know, in episode one, Ken Williams jumped into this like deep dive into equity. And I couldn't help but see the parallels between the book that you all wrote and the book that he wrote. And when Jeannie and I were, were kind of mapping out our season, we thought this was the perfect follow-up to episode one. Just talk to us as you were listening to it as, as an author, but also as somebody that is a, a reader, an avid reader. What connections did you make to what Ken was talking about? Okay, so first of all, that that book, Ruthless Equity, is a jaw-dropping, magnificent piece of excellence to operationalize stuff that I think people get really comfortable chatting around um, and not really doing anything about. whole point of Yes, We Can is the beauty of figuring out what every student actually needs to get them to proficient, which I think is the biggest piece of the puzzle here. I know that we have tons of, and always have caring educators who want our IEP entitled students to be successful. The change in the metric, and I think the connection between these two texts is, I don't want kids just making growth. I certainly want them making growth to their IEP goals or, or their, through their 504 accommodations or learning and acquiring more of, of English language so they be, can become um, fluent bilingual bilingual students. I want all those things and all that so that they reach grade level proficiency. And I think that and has been the missing piece, not saying it's easy, but in the absence, like you think about if you're going on a, on a trip, in the absence of a destination, you're going to probably wander to a lot of really great places, but you may never get to the target you've set for yourself. And I just, I think that is the absolute bridge. The beauty of the work, focusing on kid by kid, skill by skill, but not to bubble wrap them because, oh, that's sweet thing. Bless your heart. You have an IEP. Uh-uh. You have an IEP and therefore entitled to core plus more special, specialized support because the ultimate destination is grade level proficient. And that that is equity. I don't care what student you're talking about. The true definition of educational equity is that they leave our school, every single student, at least proficient at grade level with whatever support and scaffold they need. That's equity. So well, Julie, oh. Julie, 
Thank you, Heather. I couldn't have said it better myself. And Julie, when you think about that same question, but you also weave in all means all, help define that for us. Um, put that in the context of what we also heard uh, from Ken Williams and Lavise Haney last time. Yeah, I, I mean, as Heather was talking, uh, all I can think think about is, yes, we can, is about equity at its, co- at its core. I mean, that really is when Matt says you can take off the, the special education piece of it, that really is what it's about. It's about adults ceasing to make choices about not exposing some students to grade level and not having high expectations for kids and not exposing kids to rigorous material. And it's, it's about, about a mindset shift, right? That, that, that moves the bar so that we as adults stop making those choices on, on behalf of kids, right? To not give them access. But for years and years, you, you know, I, I tell this story all the time. Um, years ago, it was about 10 years ago now, I was, I was speaking at a state conference for special, special education directors. It was their state conference. There were four or 500 special ed directors in the room. And, and I started to talk about all means all and let's delve into that. And someone in the audience raised their hand and they said, well, Julie, before you go on, can you please just clear, clarify for us? Can you please define all? And literally, I had never been asked that question. And, and I kind of stopped and I said, well, all. And, and there was silence. And I said, so tell me more. What is it are you looking for? And she literally said, can you please just tell us who's included in the all? when you say all means all. And Matt, what I, and Jeannie, what I came to realize is they were, that was a serious question. And I just got asked the question again last week. Like the, the question is a real question that people are asking. So when we talk about all means all, we mean all students learning to high levels and high levels means grade level or above, right? And so the question that, that, that over time we have used to decipher that, right? To, to, well, is there anyone for whom that's not appropriate? So the question that we, we want to ask ourselves that through is, is this individual student ever going to be expected to function independently once they leave the public school system? Are they going to leave the public school system, need to live on their own, get a job, pay their bills, right? Be employable, right? And whatever that looks like, all of those things. If the answer to that question is yes, then it's our moral and ethical obligation to do everything that we possibly can to get them there and to change our own mindsets and the choices that we make about that. We all have kids in our system for whom the answer is no, right? They, they will forever be dependent on family structures or community structures, shelter workshop structures, all those kinds of things. But, but I think what's important to note is you don't just then take what we would call low incidence kids or those kids and, and, and put them now in, an, in another different group, right? That's not it. Instead, you constantly work to answer those critical questions, but you individualize it for that student. What do we want this student to know and be able to do? How are we going to know, right? When they're not learning, what are we going to do? So you're answering the four critical questions, but individual for that student. And I have to tell you, not only was that really tight cycle happening for, for low incidence kids, historically answering those four critical questions for 
any student who has an IEP was not happening. It was, it was, they were essentially, it, their learning was driven by the goals and objectives as identified by the adverse effects of their disability. That was the priority and it wasn't, and it wasn't an and. So either one of you can jump in on this, but my question really is one, why do we think we got there in special education? Mm-hmm. You know, what drove us there? One. And two, what do we need to do now? Like, what are the actions we need to be taking as educators to make sure that we stop doing that? Yeah. I mean, I know obviously hold high expectations for all, but can you expand on that just a little bit more? Either one well, of you. I, I became kind of obsessed when we started writing Yes, We Can to really be able to break down kind of the history of special education and, and, and how we got here because none of us, none of us were interested in pointing fingers at anyone, right? We weren't interested in that. We, we did want to understand it, but, but we weren't interested in, in blame, right? But really, I, I think, think, I think a key point was we didn't want to keep making the same mistakes. Right. So exactly. you have to figure out how you got someplace. Yes. You want to go someplace different. How did we get there with all, and I have to believe with yeah. all the very best of intentions oh, or most absolutely. of the best intentions, let's say that well-intended people got to a place where special ed became an end point where, okay, now you're there as opposed to a gateway to get what you need with the goal of needing less and coming back and needing less support and striving to proficiency. So I loved Julie's dig in about how did we get here? Because and when I talk about it, I say, this is the cautionary tale. Like let's mm-hmm. not make, if we're, we are going to make a million mistakes, but let's not make the same ones we did that got us right here. And right. I think Julie, if you'd go on and kind of say the key, key pieces that you learned, I mean, that's the beauty of, of it is that failing forward. You know, we're in a place where we are, we're not going to place blame, but we're certainly want to try to not go back there. Well, there's so many things that happened, right. As the result longitudinally. So really I, the, the, the impetus for some of the examination stemmed from that 2002 president's commission on excellence in special education, right. It, it, it was a interesting longitudinal study. There weren't any, I don't think findings in there that are, are shocking, but it, you know, the findings really pointed to the fact that we had veered so far off the path of what special education was originally designed for, right? Like Heather said, to be that gateway to specialized instruction to close the gaps and come out. I think that a contemporary way to to kind of describe it is special education originally was meant, not originally the very first right staff special education was simply to allow students with significant disabilities to come to public school, right? Because, because before that, they weren't even allowed to attend public right. school. Then it morphed into the specialized instruction related to adverse effects of a disability, right? And free and appropriate pub- public education. But if you think about it in contemporary terms, I always liken it to how a system of intervention should work, right? That wasn't all defined for us back then, right? But, but the bottom line is kids were going out, we were washing our hands of them and, and really not taking collective ownership, but we're relying on special education to somehow sprinkle some magic fairy dust and fix everything about kids, right? But as special education evolved, it became more and more burdensome with all of the procedural safeguards and all of the requirements that that was what special that's what special educators spend the vast majority of their time on. So when you talk about 
things becoming more data-driven in education overall, really all of those best practices and, and, and that robust cycle of instruction and looking at formative data to, to drive what it is you're going to do next in your classroom and instruction, none of that was happening for special education students, right? None of that was happening in order to close the gap. The, the focus was all on the process and the procedural safeguards and the, the laws of special ed. Very little time was actually focused on student outcomes, right? And, and on actual learning, right? And, and closing those gaps and monitoring data. As a matter except of fact- right before the annual review. Yes, except at, right before the annual review. And then we would say, sit down and say, okay, so did, uh, did Johnny meet their, their goals? And, you know, wherever it was that Johnny ended the end of the school year, we would set a goal for Johnny to make one year's growth in one year's time again, essentially sealing the deal that they would remain however far behind they were. Like we weren't comfortable setting stretch goals or, or expecting, you know, expecting students to grow more than one year in one year's time. So there was all of this focus on process, but you have to remember if there's nothing in a system in any school if there's nothing available between what an individual teacher is doing day in and day out in their classroom in isolation and special education, what every diligent, hardworking educator is going to want for that student who's struggling is the most intense help possible, right? And so if that's all you have is an individual teacher working in isolation or special education, that's what you're going to want for those kiddos. So in the absence of a multi-tier system of support, right, and diligently answering critical questions three and four in a PLC, without those things in place, that's how the percentages of special education students across the country began to escalate and grow and grow and grow. I have been to large urban districts where 28% of students in the system have IEPs, right? Like, so that's the only answer. That's, that's the only the answer only in the system answer. for a student to get more support Right. is they got to get an IEP to get more help because it's not a system that's looked at the tiers that, that could come before that. So that's right. Well-intended educators want students to get help. If, if the only, it's like a life, a life raft. If the only way to stop from drowning is to jump in the life raft, if that's your only answer, then of course we want to put kids in there. So again, it comes from a place of good intentions, but you know, we've looked at the longitudinal research around the, the, long-term impact of, of IEP entitlement for kids. And it's a little bit abysmal um, when you think about lower levels of, of earnings, lower, you know, higher incarceration rates. I mean, I'm not saying that's true for every student, but there's enough trend data to tell us yeah. not that IEP equals this. It's the fact that something's happening in this gap and lack of access to robust supports with the target of grade level proficiency, college, career, life readiness, there's some gap that's happening that well that leads kids to be in a place where they're not ready to be successful. And I think that's well, the fundamental question. Well, and part of part of what that that historical look tells us is in the very largest eligibility category, right, which was a, is a specific learning disability. The way that we historically were identifying kids as being eligible was a statistically significant gap between IQ and achievement, that discrepancy model, right? But we know that that's nearly impossible to get until about the end of third grade. That, I mean, that's just that this, statistically it doesn't work. And we all know what, what research shows about students who haven't learned to read by the end of third grade, right? So, so if, if students aren't eligible for special education services, until about the end of third grade, I'll tell you what, your uphill climb just became that much steeper. Um, so, 
So it was a weight to fail model. So in, in that report, they called it a weight to fail model. And, and that's essential. So, so you can kind of start to think about all of the things that we started to hear over the last 15 to 18 years, early intervention, early intervention, RTI legislation, right? All of those things that slowly but surely started to um, emerge with the goal of filling in the gap between the individual teacher and special education. So, so in places where you're doing this work with fidelity and implementing, you know, RTI systems and, and um, working on what's happening right there in tier one, you're starting to see the percentages of students with IEPs tick down, right? Particularly in, in, in those categories like specific learning disability and speech and language, um, because what's happening right there in tier one in that cycle of instruction with a robust intervention system you're not having to do as many case studies, right? But the, the other piece is, uh, Heather, to your point, the other reality across the country is core plus more wasn't happening. The right. services and more was happening related to how do we work on the underlying skill deficits, but in the ways in which we're working on the underlying skill deficits and the when, right, was continued to compound the problem because we weren't giving kids access, continued access to the core. And let's let's dig into that very yeah. specifically, because now you both have mentioned it. It's a big part of the book as well. For those folks that maybe that doesn't resonate when they hear core plus more, Heather, just kind of dive into that a little bit more. A big part of your book was about core plus more. It was about making sure that everybody has access and masters essential learning standards. So tell us about that. And then I know that your district has a very unique approach to ensure that that instruction is tailored for all students. So I'd love for you to share that as well. Sure. So, you know, I, I don't like things to get jargonized, so I appreciate digging in here on this core plus more. Um, what I can tell you I know is going to happen is if we skip looking at tier one core essential instruction and shift to think about, well, what's our tier three, tier two? Oh, my gosh, our tier three is not working. Everybody, you know, the system of special ed, you're, you're looking at the wrong piece first. OK, so think about the foundation of a house. You're not going to put the roof on a house in the absence of a strong foundation. You're not going to put walls up without a strong foundation. That's kind of what we do when we ignore. Um, and I think sometimes that ignoring is a little bit purposeful because it's sure hard to deal with that elephant in the room, which is core instruction by all of our general educators. Um, you know, what's happening there. That's an easy one to avoid, to, to not have hard conversations. I don't think it has to be a hard conversation, but it has to be informed to have it or else we end up pointing fingers at each other. But so that's a key piece to this is not, you know, while we're thinking about tiered supports, we don't lose sight of what's the foundational instruction. Meaning, and I, you know, I'm, I'm hoping our listeners are going to glom onto this one, this is just basic foundational PLC work. Professional learning communities charges us to answer in every collaborative team construct four questions in this order. One, what are the essential standards we want kids, all kids, to have access to, know, and be able to demonstrate? Not every single standard. Which ones get more time? Which ones get our common assessments around them? Which ones do we target for intervention? Nobody's saying, Take some standards and throw them out. We're not going to look at those. No, but we are going to get on the same page and collaboratively decide which ones get more time and attention. Now, when we say collaboratively decide, that means every, every teacher that impacts that course or content is part of the conversation. 
So we cannot identify essential standards without our special educators at the table, without our EL bilingual specialists at the table to help inform that. Because if those are the most essential skills we want kids to have to demonstrate proficiency at their grade level, they got to be part of that conversation. Or else, oh, Heather, what are they going to resource about? What are they going to support about? Heather, are you saying that you cannot have inclusive practices for students if you don't have inclusive practices for the adults that are supporting those students? Well, that's a way smarter way to say it than I just did. I was going all over the place, but yes, exactly that's exactly right. what I'm saying. I don't know. I'm going to do my very best to be a case manager for my IEP entitled students, the, the students that I'm blessed to serve. But if I'm not part of that conversation, I'm, I'm grabbing at the wind. Okay, this feels important to me. Last year, I think they spent time on this. Get them at the table. Get them at the table to have that conversation, to inform it. That's what we're talking about in terms of core is every player in the game having a voice into, into what are the most essential standards to then figure out before instruction begins, how are we gonna check for understanding across every teacher of this course to make sure along the way, every student's making progress to proficiency. That's question two. How are we gonna know who knows it? That leads to question three, how are we gonna respond if some kids win some kids, because you can predict some won't, but you can't predict that it's only gonna be the IEP entitled students that don't. If that's where your brain is going, I need I need you to stop and rethink, recalibrate that to really look at the data. Who are the students that haven't yet mastered it? Please keep the word yet in there. Who hasn't yet mastered it? And what are we going to do to provide support? How are we as a collaborative team going to do it? How are we going to check our egos at the door? And I'm going to look at it and say, wow, Jeannie, your student's performance was out of the park. How'd you do that? Girl, how'd you do that? Can I come watch? Can you show me? If none of us cracked the code on it and our students struggled everywhere, who are our resources we can lean on? Give me an instructional coach. Give me a reading specialist. Give me Global PD. Give me something so we can learn together. The same is true for question four, which is often forgotten because we're always freaking out about the students who haven't yet gotten it. And I get that. I'm the parent of a student with an IEP. I totally get it. And those students who have it quickly demonstrate proficiency and are ready to go deeper, not faster, deeper into that content, have as much a right to be able to do so as our students who struggle. Can we just look at every student and say they all have special needs, every single one of them, and it's our job to figure out what they are to reach that crown, to reach grade level proficient, and get okay with the, flat, the fact that we don't have to fly a superhero cape behind ourselves and solve every problem. We got really, really smart people around us. And lean in on our special educators. They are the masters at getting ahead of a scaffold. They've got graphic organizers for everything already. They got a word bank. They've got background knowledge. They got resources. Do watch this TED talk. Watch this. Do that. Because that's their jam. General educators have their own set of skills on how to get most students to proficient. The magic happens when you put those hands together and before instruction even begins, we're talking about how are we going to scaffold, stretch, and extend for all students when they hit that bump in the road before instruction even starts and as a synthesis of our greatness. Like that's the magic that happens. And, and you know, I'd like to say that, yes, we can, is all new, brand new information. It's PLCs coming to life. You just got everybody at the table thinking about every single student 
rather than delineating kids into these groups by labels. So Heather and Jeannie, I have a question for you related to this. So we do the two-day workshops, right? For Yes, We Can. We do inclusive practices. How oftentimes when you get to part of the content where you're leading participants through taking a priority standard and unpacking it and understanding it and identifying the level of rigor that's being asked and thinking about scaffolding and a learning progression, how oftentimes do special educators who are in the room who are oftentimes responsible for teaching the core content or supporting the core content say to you, I've never been involved in this. I don't know what the the essentials are. I've never been involved in the conversation. Boy, wouldn't this make my job different if I understood this? And they say, thank you for walking us through it because we have never been invited to the table for the conversation. Yep. Every and I would say the other frequently occurring conversation time. that happens parallel to that is, oh, the district's already done this for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so we miss two great opportunities when that happens. And, you know, props, props to school systems that, that do get ahead of things and do help look at the most essential standards to calibrate across their buildings, like props on that. But that doesn't waive a grade level team of the absolute need to dig into them yourse- themselves because words like theme, words like hypothesis, words like um, inference, as many different people as hear those words have that many different impressions of them. So we got to get together, even if it's all in a beautiful binder or an amazing Google folder or searchable website, you still as that team have to come together and come to a common understanding of what proficient looks like. So as frequently, Julie, to your point of, of hearing our amazing special educators in this field say, wow, it'd, it'd be really cool to be a part of that. But we're always over here in the special ed PLC. Yeah. And as I, often I just as that have, is the district's done the work for us. So we don't we don't have to do that. I just have to add to that, Heather. Um, it's not the one time that you unpack the standard and then you can say you've done it right. and therefore you've complied with the unpacking process. It's about continuous conversations before that standard is going to be taught about what does this actually mean? And there's new people who join teams every year, um, sometimes mid-year. So we need to keep having those conversations. It's not just once. No. And I'm going to segue into... So there's also the yeah, but, and I'm, I'm just going to play it out and I want to know how you would respond to it. So the yeah, but I, I, it's hard to see these kids struggle. I mean, they can't, they can't read. So how am I supposed to teach them to grade level? Um, what, what do I need to do about that? Because, and, and I get it, it's real and we love kids and we don't want to see them struggle, but Let's talk about that for a minute. So I want to make a connection to ruthless equity, right? Because because since since your podcast and your talk with Ken, um, even though I'd read the book and and read this, during your podcast, it, it, it resonated with me and I've had the conversation with every group I've worked with since. And that is his comment, life doesn't level down. Life doesn't level down, right? And and kids are gonna are gonna have to blaze a trail, become independent and live a life post public school, right? Post school. So life doesn't level down. And so 
And so it, that is always a fascinating conversation because we have got to stop defining advocacy as we're, as we protect kids from struggle, right? You struggle. When you think about where we all do our deepest and best learning, it's typically not in our comfort zone. It's just outside our comfort zone, right? That's, that's where a lot of deep learning happens. It's the same is true for kids, right? So if we continue to protect students for, and you think that advocating for them or being a case manager means marching into a gen ed teacher's class to tell them all the things they can't expect, right? Of the students on your caseload, that's not, at, that's not advocating, that's debilitating, right? So, so the issue is that we as the adults in those environments where struggle is an important part of learning, it's our responsibility to know and be able to identify the difference between productive struggle and destructive struggle. That's our responsibility, right? But, but productive struggle is important for everyone's learning. And then it's our job to know when to scaffold down and climb back up. Like the adults have to be part of the scaffolding and we have to be able to identify what kind of struggle is happening at any given time. But protecting kids from all kinds of struggle, that's debilitating. There's nothing about that that's advocating. And I think I think I would connect that to, you know what, educators who say that are absolutely right. It is hard. It's um, hard. And yeah. we don't want to be mean. And 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 I would argue back that that's mean, but so is um you you may think that's mean, but so is ensuring a student isn't ever gonna be grade level proficient because they never get access or even the attempt. Right. So could we instead look at what can the student do, what can they not yet do, and figure out the interval steps to connect where I am to the target where I want to be, and then purposefully scaffold for that. Can we live in the land of, of and? Yes, the student has deficits, and they have strengths, and they have ways that we know they learn. So how can we use all those things to give them access to grade level while we also move up those those rungs on the ladder in in our district we um we we've recently started talking about any student uh through the lens of what's what's their superpower and what's their kryptonite because for every every single student has domains of strength has areas of strength has interests and opportunities that light them up and then what's their kryptonite what do we have to protect against what are the things we have to make sure we're working on um, whether that's self-regulation, foundational academics, um, home-based trauma, you know, any of that, let's talk about it. But we always start with the superpower because you can do a whole lot to leverage forward with the superpower. And it is easy as educators to dwell in the kryptonite and, and all the things that are that are hard for the student. So that's been a paired conversation that we've had another thing um, that that we struggled with. And I'll be honest and say we struggled with it before COVID, during COVID, and now we're here. So I'm not going to give a COVID excuse for any of this, is we could absolutely walk the talk of professional learning communities. We could identify essential standards. We could create common assessments. We could kind of sort of talk about, so what is this going to do next for students? But we weren't great at, so how does all this turn into what happens every day for every student in the classroom? And so this summer, we worked really hard, and, and honestly... Yes, We Can and Ruthless Equity were the two books that grounded us in this. And, and then a, another piece of research that, Jeannie, I'm so glad you shared with us, and that's that opportunity myth from 2018. 
Um, so if our listeners aren't super familiar with that, I'll do my best to sum it up. And basically in a huge study, they found out that um, across school systems, when kids struggled, and sometimes even when they didn't, students were missing out on four key things. And that was great access to grade level appropriate assignments, strong instruction by their teachers, deep engagement in the tasks, and then teachers who truly held high expectations for them. So kids were missing those four things. So what do you do about it? Well, we as this is one time we as educators hold the keys to that car. We can control for those four things. So the answer's in the problem. If students are missing and don't have access to grade level appropriate assignments, let's give it. If they don't have strong instruction, and this is with all, I am an educator too. This is all the love in my heart. Like it's hard to know what to do all the time for every student. Like I get it, but let's figure it out. Deep engagement, like some of that research said that less than half of our high schoolers feel like they're really ever engaged in learning. Ah, less than half. Mm -hmm. They're kind of like, I don't even know that I need to be here. Oh my gosh. So how do we engage kids? And then finally, hold high expectations. I'm not saying like, let's write a Hallmark card about it, but live and breathe high expectations. Like I believe, because those are huge impacts. So we came together and I'll just share, you know, because I like to get to, to how of things. So this is the how of our journey. Two key hows for us. One is the super superpower kryptonite conversation. And the next one is we have built collective agreement across our system that in every classroom, every period, every lesson, we're going to see five things. And we watch for them. We're coaching around them. We're giving massive, this is the work we're doing. So these five things, and, and, and you'll recognize them. One is the personal greeting at the door. You heard that in what book? Deep equity. Just connecting with kids in a positive way when they enter your environment skyrockets. Their engagement skyrockets their achievement and dramatically decreases discipline and behavioral disruptions in the classroom. So we expect every adult, even bus drivers, every single person, my kitchen staff, everybody, when kids come in, you're going to give them a personal greeting and we're dumping ideas for each other. Here's how I did it. I asked them cereal flavors. I asked if they want the high five, handshake, hug, all those things, because sometimes you run out of ideas. You got great people around you, lean in on them. The second is a very clearly posted academic target or targets for that period of instruction laser-like focus, exactly what are we going to be working on for you to demonstrate mastery of at the end of this learning. Paired with that is a social-emotional learning target. To do that, what kind of SEL skills are you going to have to demonstrate? So that, so that's three. Four is you can use all that to engage in the task I'm going to put before you because at some point in every lesson, there's going to be a full engagement task where the kids are driving the learning, whether it's our three-year-olds or our 13-year-olds, and embedded in every single lesson is expected to have a check for understanding. Who's got it? Who kind of sort of has it? Who doesn't even see it yet? Because that can inform immediately what happens the next day. And I am telling you, we are early in the school year, but I can tell you, I feel a difference in our culture, in our teachers' absolute belief in what they're doing, the energy in our buildings, Discipline already, I have had three total write-ups so far in our middle school. Three That's total. Nice. None of them have led to detentions because the kids have all been able to talk out what they've done. And that is a very, very different story than we would typically have four weeks into the school year. So that's how we're trying to, to really marry all this and turn it into practice. We got to stop talking about what should be. People don't want to be should on. 
what do we do? What do we do to make a difference for kids that is doable? And this is this is working for us. And I hate that we call it the Frizz Five because I'm so not a my name on things person, um, but it sticks. So yeah, we are we are living and breathing the the Frizz Five, and it's doable. It's brought us together. It's created um, a lot of inquiry across across everybody. You talk to any, I mean, I'm out in my building with kids every day and they are lit up. Um, the thing they identify most honestly is, yeah, I've noticed that every day I'm getting greeted right at the door. How's that feel? It feels pretty awesome. It's a pretty powerful study that Ken references in uh-huh. Ruthless Equity. And I know he talks about it's it's much more than just the handshake at the door. Uh-huh. It's it's about a, a real connection with kids. And when kids feel like they belong yeah. at your school and, and feel connected that it makes a huge difference. You're already noticing that other. Absolutely. And, that, yeah. and I will tell you the first couple of days was, was real surface level. Um, and you know, people, people will comply before they commit to something. And I get that. And I'm okay with compliance to get started because if comply leads to commit, I'm a happy girl. So yes, it started with kind of these, these light and fluffy things, but that's better. That's better than the teacher being at the desk or not even looking up because they're swamped and they're busy. So it wasn't people just being mean by cause. It was, we hadn't raised attention to it, but now like you'll hear things like even restorative practices are embedded. You know what, man, Matt, I know yesterday was a rough day. I'm so glad you're here. I can't wait to see you rock and roll today. Like think about the difference that makes for a kid who struggled the day before. No doubt. Mm-hmm. And Heather, I can't. I know you're passionate about dinosaurs, dude. Come in. I can't. Well, you're going to add so much to this story today. That student shoulders go back, their eyes light up. They are they they feel like they belong. They feel like that class can't go on without them. And and that's I don't know. That's the place I would want to learn if it was me. Wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Heather, I got to ask this question. Do you think that we can share the Frizz Five resource on our on our podcast website for anybody that's interested? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what we've built collaboratively is um, what it can look like, because there's no one right answer to it, but it's like a brain dump of all the really smart people I'm blessed to work with, just throwing their ideas in for all five of those things. And then because we know we always want to be working not just in how and what, but why, um, we've co-constructed for each of the five, why is this so important for students and why is it so important for us to do this work? Um, and it's 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 a pretty cool project. I just had my whole middle school just spent their uh, last collaborative team time brainstorming checks for understanding because um, they thought they were stuck until they talked to each other and realized that they came up with about 75 different ways to check for understanding. So the 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 greatness is in the room. The greatness is in the room. And I think I we got to start with the crown with our teachers, too. Absolutely. Yeah. So as we conclude uh, this incredible segment of Real Talk, we're going to go straight up presidential style debate uh, for the last question. So that means a two minute kind of sign off to to sell yourself, not sell yourself, but yeah, really kind of conclude our <laughs> I, thinking. Well, I'm not in favor of that. No, I'm on the clearance rack. <laughs> All right. Two minutes. But here's what I really want you to think about. Right now, I can just guarantee you that we have practitioners in the field, potentially a principal that's listening to this podcast. And as you all are sharing your experience, your expertise, they're having epiphany moments. And they recognize, you know what? We have an issue in our building when it comes to inclusive practices. And it's something that 
I want to, I want to, I want to get my first step, uh, it, get, get my first step going. What would be your recommendation for that principal to take that very first step in their building? Julie, you want to go first? You want me to go ahead. Um, so my first step would be for whoever it is to remind themselves that the target is not perfection, but is progress. So we're not going to wait till everything is perfect and every schedule works and every person can be everywhere to do anything. We're going to start with where we are. So that would be my first kind of mindset is progress over perfection. The second thing is to just start doing the work. So I'm, I'm guessing that your master schedule can't be beautifully on a light switch arranged so that every special educator and EL specialist can be with every team every time that they meet for the whole time. So where can you start? Um, if, if it's even more challenging than finding a little bit of time where those schedules can mesh. And remember, we want this collaboration to happen within the structure of the school day. We don't want people having to stay after to do this work. It needs, it, we need to find and co-create that time on the inside of the day. Um, so that might be the first place you start is when can we get our collaborative teams together? If that's in place, how can we find time, if not just skinnies of time, where every single person that impacts that course or content can have the conversation together to focus on those four critical questions. And if it can't be every grade level, perhaps you have to look at, well, which grade level has the highest number of IEP entitled students? So we could start the work there. Where do we have a content area where we have the most students really struggling and having complex needs? Maybe we start there. Where's a grade level where perhaps we have students that are just about there and perhaps we could tick them out of needing that IEP support back into less restrictive supports. Um, so I think it starts, that was kind of three starting points. So I don't know if that's fair. Finding time for, for collaboration, getting everybody at the table as much as you can so that then all those really smart people can focus on the four critical questions for every student they serve. Go ahead, right. Julie. All right, um, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna back the truck up to something that I believe really strongly in has to be done parallel to that. You have to get every single person in the room, and you have to do an absolute deep dive on your core beliefs and what you believe in, um, because when you do that, it is fascinating for educators to hear from other educators who aren't on their current team or don't serve in their role. You have to really examine what your core beliefs are and then spend some time really taking a look at what is aligned to your core beliefs and what current practices, policies, habits, behaviors are not aligned. Because it is really easy to stay above the waterline, so to speak, and talk about here's what we believe in. These are our core beliefs. And you're going to put all the structures in place. But if you don't, really spend time making those things that are subconscious conscious like what let's really talk about if we really believe all kids can learn to high levels right and we're going to take collective ownership what's our current reality do we really believe that and the most important question is what is our evidence right to heather's point the the frizz five the thing she's talking about what is our evidence that we're actually walking the walk and not just talking the talk and is there a disconnect between what we say we believe in and how we're actually behaving every single day? And I feel like that conversation, that foundational conversation and ongoing conversation is that step is sometimes skipped because I think it's a critical step to create the sense of urgency and the why, right, behind 
putting people together. What are they going to talk about, right? The essentials, answering the four critical questions. The why behind that is a critical conversation to have if you're beginning this journey. And not even if you're just beginning this journey, you have to keep coming back to it because more often than not, when you walk into a school who have stumbled or stalled, it's because the elephant in the room is that they have stumbled related to their day-to-day behaviors as it relates to what they say they believe in. I love that you said that, Julie. That's awesome. I just think you have to do the two together, right? They, it, it's, uh, it's not one before the other. You have to constantly do both. Jeannie, you are the third author of this just incredible book that I think has transformed so many schools across the country over the course of the past several years. You know, give us your final thoughts as we wrap up this segment um, on, on Yes, We Can and this idea of inclusive practices. Well, first, I will say I agree with everything Heather and Julie said, because I always agree with Heather and Julie, right, ladies? We share our brain. Yeah. Um, you know, there's been times we haven't agreed with each other, but we usually those get are the best times. That's what they really are. About. Yes. Those really are the best times. We have what we like to call rumbles, right? Rumbles, um, but I will say that for me, um, I know that it was addressed in both Heather and Julie's responses, but to me, it's, it's question one without question. Mm-hmm. It's, it's getting crystal clear about what it is students should know and be able to do. And then ensuring that we get every student there, or at least as close to there as we possibly can. But the second piece for me, and, you know, Matt, you asked the question from, uh, you know, what would your advice to principals be? I will, I will also say that strong, brave, dedicated leadership around this work is also absolutely critical. Um, we have been doing this inclusive practices work in schools um, all over the country, really, and where we've seen uh, the most increase in student achievement is in the places where the principals, the leaders, formal and informal, are leading the work um, with accountability, um, with passion, all of those things. So I think it's it's about um, not being afraid as a leader to to expect that you know people are doing this work in the way we're describing it. So back to what Julie was saying, what's happening below the waterline is is something to pay attention to as a leader. So I think those things are absolutely. Um, critical to this work actually making a difference for kids. Well, let me just say, do you, know, do you know what a great resource is for that? This little book called Leading with Intention and Leading Beyond Intention by <laughs> the amazing Jeannie Spiller and her co-author Karen Power. Um, those are fabulous books to figure out how to lead lead the rumble. Lead the rumble. Hey, I, I set you up for that. Heather, like we didn't even talk about it. Yeah. Well, let me just say it, you know, as, as the co-host of Real Talk, it's an honor to be able to co-host with somebody that I've looked up to for a long time and Jeannie, but it's a real honor for us to be able to have all, all three of you, but the two of you on with us this episode to talk about the incredible book. Yes, we can. I'm telling you, principals, teachers, district leaders, if you've not gotten that book, another game changer for your district, you'll never be able to go back to doing things the way that you were doing them before. Once you read this book, um, 
Heather, Julie, on behalf of myself and Jeannie, we want to thank you for joining us today. And we really, really hope that we can have you back on here very soon. And I just want to say you two make me better. And I appreciate both of you for that. So thank Mm -hmm. you. I would say the girls. I would say the same. It's been a blessing to have you in my journey. Same here. I absolutely reiterate that. Love you girls to death. And Matt, I, this may come as a shock to you, but we are rarely at a loss for words. (laughs) (laughs) That makes the show go. That makes the show better. So thank you. Today's practitioner perspective brought to you by the letter P. The letter P, Matt? Well, I mean, it it is an alliteration. Uh, Okay. It's a stretch, but let's get started. So we are extremely fortunate to have our practitioner's perspective with um, my friend and colleague, um, Michelle Wambach, who is a principal in Arizona. So um, I was fortunate enough to be able to work with um, several schools in Arizona who were really um, dedicated to the Yes We Can work and ensuring um, higher levels of learning for students with special needs, all students, but then also students with special needs. Um, And I had the pleasure of working with Michelle and other principals um, and leaders in the district in Arizona. So when we were considering a podcast around Yes, We Can, Michelle's the first person who came to mind for me around um, a practitioner's perspective on this work. Um, I I just need to say that she is one of those leaders um, that is passionate about this work, um, knows what's important to focus on as a leader, um, and ensures that the people who work within her school um, are focused on high levels of learning for all kids, but also for students with special needs to ensure that they get um, the grade level standards at grade level proficiency. Um, And she, is one of those practitioners who um, hears about it and then can just operationalize it in her school at a level that um, many other leaders I've worked with um, kind of struggle with sometimes. So Michelle, if you don't mind, maybe first just telling us a little bit about yourself um, and what you do right now. I know you've worked in, you know, several different schools as a leader, but just kind of guide us through kind of where you've been in your career. Um, and then anything also in terms of the work with Yes, We Can, uh, big picture, and then we'll dig into some specific questions around that. Well, first off, Matt and Janine, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here Um, And so just a little bit about myself. Um, I started in 2003. I interviewed at an elementary school and my choices were kindergarten or fifth grade. And I remember at the end, my principal asked me, which which one would you prefer? And I told her anyone, because at that point, you know, you're looking to get a job. But I was so thankful she chose fifth grade for me because if I had been in kindergarten, it would have been comical for a lot of people. (laughs) Um, But... So um, I taught elementary and I just leveled up. Um, I did fourth, fifth, sixth grade, eventually up to seventh grade mathematics. And then I shifted into um, student achievement role, which was an instructional coach working with teachers. 
um, trying to make more of that impact instead of 30 kids in my room, um, all the kids in our school. And then um, six years ago, I became a building principal. And so this is my 19th year in education and my 18th year with service to Unified Public Schools. Well, Michelle, I know that we have a lot in common, kindred spirits, if you will, because you, you were a sitting principal. You were equally moved by the book, Yes, We Can, uh, changed a lot uh, in the way that you ran your building, in the work that your building was doing. I certainly can relate to that. Just for a second, will you tell our listeners some of the actions maybe that were most powerful for you as, as you started to incorporate these ideas and concepts into your school building? I think the why, the why is so important of what we do in this work. And so when we're talking, when we, we were doing Yes We Can and Jeannie came in, she did the presentation to our staff. We, we talk about labels and like we put a special education on them and, and that's how we talk about our students. But they're, you know, they're really general education kids with special ed supports. And so I thought that was very powerful, a different way of looking at things. And so when you look at the history in regards to our, our students with um, special needs aren't necessarily growing like they should be when they should, how do we do that? And so after we got in and got the background of all of that, we talked about, you know, essential standards. And in our district, we had really focused on that. Um, we had gone through the real criteria, like do we have readiness, endurance, um, leverage, and the assessment component of it. And how do you break down your standard um, into knowledge and skill items? And can you build a progression that tells you here are your beginning steps all the way, um, all the way to proficiency? And so we'd worked really, really hard with that and we'd gotten to that. And so um, when Yes We Can came around, it was connecting those pieces and working with all of our staff. So our teachers in the classroom, our special education teachers, our specialists, and how to make those connections so that they weren't separate entities, but that we were working as a unit. And so we really had to think about, because we weren't meeting, we weren't collaborating in person, um, how could we make that happen? Because we know that's structural and um, scheduling because we all love schedules and, you know, we don't really like to change them, but we can. <laughs> um, and so it took a team of teachers. I had a leadership team on my campus, but I also had um, a Yes We Can leadership team um, to work through this and how could those two teams work together, but also um, work with the staff to help us move forward and that we, yes, we can get our kid, all of our kids to proficiency um, but it, it will look different for each individual student. And we need to start looking at student by student um, as opposed to all of them as a whole. So as you were doing that work, I'm sure you faced some challenges along the way. Um, so can you talk to us about maybe some of the challenges you faced in developing an inclusive environment and maybe how you overcame some of those challenges as well? So one of the activities that we did with Jeannie and um, when we were doing the work with Yes We Can is she had us do a CASAB, kind of how do you go through that and what knowledge would people need. Um, we had done a pretty good background of building that over the past few years. So that was simple at that moment in time. But for us, the struggle was really the schedule and the timing and trying to get all the people in the right spots 
So um, we built and they said that what we needed to be tight on was that we shared our learning progressions or essential standards with our um, specialist and that they promised to look through them. But also we had a team analysis common assessment form where we put our data analysis, how our kids did. We answered what strategies worked really well, maybe what some that didn't work so well. Um, and then is there anything we need to fix or look at? And so they would then um, we'd email and saying, here are strengths. Here are strengths that we see um, that our kids have. And then here are needs. What ideas do we have? And so we did that um, for the remainder of the school year. And it worked really, really well when we got our benchmark um, assessment data. We had seen more growth um, over a six-month period than we had in the last couple of years. So it was a huge celebration for all of our kids, um, especially our students with additional supports in place. Um, with the end goal in mind before I left my, my previous school um, was how do I get them to meet in person? Because that's something they really wanted to do. So that was the next challenge we were working with was figuring out a way to do that on a weekly basis. So the challenge was really, how do we collaborate at high levels? Right. Um, and then you were able to overcome that by sharing information with each other um, the best that you could. And then you eventually wanted to move that to um, actual in-person conversations. But even just the level of collaboration um, that was electronic for the most part was making a difference. Is that what you were saying? You noticed and, and do you believe that the collaborative process alone was the reason or was part of the reason why you saw the increase in student achievement or were there other factors at play too? It was because our specialists also had to promise to respond within 24 to 48 hours. And when we were like, I'd go follow up or check in on how things are going. Um, my teachers are starting to say, I've, I've changed my instruction. Like I realized they we were raising the level of rigor um, to what matched the classroom and that the activities that we were doing. Um, so it just, it became this more cohesive collaborative process that they just, it started to change their practice in the classroom because we were working together and we had all the information and all the pieces to be able to make the best decision for our kids um, at that time moving forward. And it's amazing as a principal, and I'm sure you can relate to this, when you start to see those light bulbs go off for your staff uh, and they start having these realizations that, you know what, this work is possible. It's not what we've always done, but it's possible. So, so my question to you as we kind of wrap up this segment is for a principal that's just now getting their feet wet in the process, right? They, they, they want to make inclusive practices, the work of Yes We Can, they wanna make that a mainstay in their school building. What would you recommend be their kind of first step in this process? We talk about relationships are just so important that we make with our kids. The same is true for us as principals, relationships with our staff and our kids. And those relationships help to build trust, which helps you to build the why. I think that's super important. The leadership teams that you have in place because you can't do this work alone. You need your teacher leaders to be there with you. They need to be able to, like if someone comes to them and says, like, why are you on this team? 
they should be able to tell them it's about adult learning. And we're doing that to improve our practice and meet the needs of our kids. And so what I would tell them is that you have to do this together and it's not always easy and you're going to hit pit stops along the way, but how do you adjust and, and get what is needed um, to continue to push what's best for kids um, forward? So Michelle, I know that one of your strengths is that you are able to build relationships with your staff. Um, I've seen you in action. I've seen you doing that. Um, but you're also at the same time, while you're building relationships with them, you're also working um, to improve student outcomes, which means sometimes you have pretty high expectations for what's happening at the team level, um, what's happening in classrooms. How do you balance kind of that combination of, you know, I really want people to know that I'm here for them, that I'm supporting them, but I'm also holding really high expectations for what I want to see happening um, in my school. So can you say a little more about that? So what we say is tight, but we also build that together. So we talk about our collective commitments and how we're going to hold each other to that. Um, you know, we want feedback. Are there questions um, part, one of the things that we do is come to consensus and we use Vistify for that. And if the consensus is we're mo moving forward, then we are. And, and consensus doesn't mean 100% of us are there, but that this is the work we promised to do. And so that's what I then use moving forward. And I'm like, how do I support you? Remember, here's where we committed. We said, we're going to do this work, but what are the supports um, that I can provide to you? because um, I'm here for you. And so um, what solution do you have that maybe hasn't been proposed that we can do moving forward? Um, because people have wonderful ideas, great ideas. Um, and it's, I think Ken Williams, as I've heard him say, um, the answer is in the room. It's with all the people. And so how do we do that um, together? But from my stance, we promised we, our kids that this is what we were going to do. And so my job is to support and help that um, so that we can make it happen. Because again, if we say all means all, then they're all leaving with what they need um, when they leave our school. Well, we really appreciate your perspective and your insights around this work. I know that you are making a difference in Arizona every single day. Um, and you know that we're here to support you in any way that we can. Um, just like you're supporting um, your staff and the people you work with every day. So thank you for spending some time with us. We really appreciate that you took a little time out of your day. Um, is there anything else you really just want to say to our listeners before we sign off? I'm super excited. Um, I reread Yes, We Can. And so to see the end part of it and how we, the work of, you know, what we talk about during our meetings and what are our kids' strengths based off essentials and then how do those tie to goals. Like I got super excited going, oh man, we can really knock this out of the ballpark. And so um, I can't wait to start that work here at my new school. And I'm looking forward to continue um, to learn from you, Jeannie and Matt and listen to your podcast that you're going to have continuing. And um, I'm just excited. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for being a part of it. Thank you so much, Michelle.
Yeah. We appreciate you. And uh, thank you again for spending some time with us. Jeannie, I am absolutely blown away by the conversation that we had today, both with Heather and Julie, but then with Michelle as well. I, I love this idea that, you know, we, we talked with, with the folks, including yourself, that wrote the book from a very philosophical standpoint. But to hear Michelle talk about it from a practitioner standpoint, how she's changed her school, to me, that's what it's all about. We're trying to take these ideas, we're trying to make them meaningful and allow people that are actually in the trenches to do the job. So, you know, what were your reflections on our show today? Well, Matt, I have to say, um, when I think about where it's working, um, I think about strong leadership. Um, and I, Michelle, um, Michelle Wambach, who spoke to us um, from Arizona, um, she's, she's such a strong leader. Um, she um, hears, you know, what's out there, what's best for kids, and she's going to make it happen in her schools. And then I think about <clears throat> Heather and Julie, both leading school districts and really leading this type of work, you know, from the district office all the way down to the schools. And strong leadership to me um, is really the key to making sure that all of this works. And I know we'll dig into leadership in some other uh, podcasts coming out, but um, I do think that, that that's what kind of struck me when I thought about this podcast later. I thought about, uh, or I thought about the conversation later. I thought about that. I thought about, you know, that's pretty, it's pretty amazing to see two superintendents, you know, so passionate about this work. And then um, just watching Michelle make a difference in Arizona um, has been a true pleasure. Uh, for me and working with her and watching her get excited about the work um, and excited to see kids growing and learning at high levels. It's been really um, a positive experience for me as a leader myself. So you know, it reminds me of a quote, and I believe it was Regina Stevens Owens, our, our colleague and friend with Solution Tree, but she said, transform people, transform people. And mm -hmm. I thought, wow, you know, how true is that though? Like when you're transformed, you can't help but go and just transform others that you're working with that you have, you know, you know, that you're around every single day. I know that, you know, for me, the book was, was transforming, uh, but I like to think that because of that book and the work that I did that, that, you know, I was able to transform others that were in my building or in my district. And I know that, you know, in your position as assistant superintendent for all of the years, like the, the number of people that you've reached, um, just really, you couldn't put it into words. What I also think that we hope is that this podcast allows other people to be transformed so that they can go out and do that work as well. It's exciting to think about. I really can't wait to see the impact that, yes, we can, will continue to have, but hopefully this podcast bringing light to some of these issues will have as well. I totally agree with you, Matt. And I also want to thank you for your passion around this work, um, watching you lead it with others um, all around the country. Um, make I know this sounds like a, a motherly moment, but it makes me proud <laughs> that you're out there doing this work um, at such a high level with others. And your passion is contagious. And um, I appreciate it. And thank you for it.
Well, that means the world to me, Jeannie. Um, really, really thankful for the opportunity to do the work and then also to just work with you. It's just been incredible. Um, you know, as we look towards our, our next few episodes, we haven't put anything quite in stone yet, but we definitely have some ideas about the topics that are going to be upcoming. And I got to tell you, you're not going to want to miss them. So as we kind of said at the beginning of the podcast, and just want to remind you now, if you like the conversations, if you like the guests and the topics and all of those things, share this podcast with your friends, like and subscribe so that you know when any new episode drops, it would mean the world to us. And Matt and I would love to hear if you have some ideas for our podcast, um, feel free to email us. I think you can um, reach us um, from our website, realtalkwithmattandjeannie.com. Is that right, Matt? That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, yeah. So you can go to our website. You can see our, our email addresses there. If you want to reach out, we would love to hear from you. Uh, and just what, what do you want to hear us talk about? We would love to know what you think. Absolutely. Well, Jeannie, until next time, uh, thank you for listening to us. And we cannot wait to connect with you again soon. Have a good one. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Real Talk with Jeannie and Matt. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to like and subscribe to us on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode when it drops. Until next time, stay focused, stay vigilant, but most importantly, keep it real.